The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I'm going to start off by reading the first chapter of 1 Peter. This is what Peter writes. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. I'd like to say this about the word foreknowledge. To say that you're foreknown means quite literally that you were foreloved. If you go back in the Old Testament, the word know is translated as much by the word loved as it is by a known, because it's, it's something, for example, Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. So it's not talking about just knowing about somebody, but it's actually talking about having a relationship with them, knowing them. And so what he's saying here is that we, we are foreknown, which means that we are foreloved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that we may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. In other words, his blood being the price for our redemption being applied to us. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. It will not fade away. Those are the negatives. It says that what we have received in salvation is, is imperishable. It will not corrupt and it's undefiled. It never gets polluted. And it will not fade away. It's not like, a, you know, paint on your car that fades away or, or the beautiful color in a flower. It's going to stay the same, uh, what he has given to us, who are protected by the power of God. That is, we are surrounded by the armies of God to protect us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof, in other words, in order that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, I love this, he says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you are not seeing him now, but believing in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Remember that expression, joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'd like to explain one little thing. The word soul, uh, as I've said before, is talking about that inner capacity that we have that God created us with to feel life. And so what happens in salvation is our soul experiences salvation. It's set free from the effects of sin so that we can begin to experience the emotional life of a born-again believer. And that's a big change. Then he goes on, verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know, because they couldn't understand this, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. In other words, they were trying to figure out how these two things fit together. How is it that the Messiah could suffer and at the same time he could be glorious and that he would be blessed richly? It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through 
those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It's very mysterious, but it's glorious that Christ came to give his life for us, and at the same time he came to be glorified in our midst so that we would see who he really is. Therefore, he says, gird up your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who he called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you address his father, the one who impartially judges, in other words, he is totally fair. He impartially judges according to each man's work. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. The idea of fear here is that our reverence for God, we reverence him above all other things. And then he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were instead, you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown, that is, he was foreloved before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last days for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. This is another one of those places where he tells us to love one another just the way Christ loved us. For you have been born not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. And so he goes on to talk about this joy that we have because Christ has done this glorious work for us. And this, and what he's going to tell us is, this is what outfits you, this is what qualifies you to be an effective witness for Christ. It's the joy that God places in your heart and soul so that you find great, great joy in who Christ is and what he has done. And when that is affecting you, it will motivate you to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. And so this is what this is all about. Now, when was the last time you felt so filled with joy that you thought you would explode if you didn't verbally and physically express it? In fact, have you ever seen somebody who reacted when they found out that they had won a million dollars? That one happened to me one time, a neighbor won a, the lottery and they won a million dollars over a lifetime. And uh, it was amazing the way, the, the joy that they expressed, they just felt free to express great, great joy. Or what about a 49er fan when Dwight Clark made the catch in the end zone against the, the Dallas Cowboys? Well, this is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 7, verse 23. He says, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. The joy people felt because of him. That's what he was talking about. That we are not to take offense, that people get happy when their eyes are open to who Christ really is. I was talking to a brother here a couple of weeks ago that I don't see very often, and I was telling him about a testimony that I'd heard a man in our church give at our Bible study, and uh, he says, you know, that's exactly what I experienced. I experienced the effect of being in the presence of the living God, and it was so overwhelming I could hardly stand it. 
This is something that offended the Pharisees when Jesus manifested great joy in his interaction with people. It, it offended them. And so that's what he says here in Luke chapter 7, verse 23, that this offended the Pharisees. Should believers ever feel and react to this kind of joy? Do you think Jesus ever did? Well, listen to this. This is Luke chapter 10, verse 21. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. That's an emotional reaction. Jesus experienced a full range of emotional reactions. In response to commercializing religion, he felt anger. In anticipating the cross and the suffering on the cross and the shame it would bring, uh, he experienced the emotion of agony in Luke 22 and Hebrews chapter 5. Joy, there are three word groups of joy. The first one, the first group of words refers to the physical comfort and well-being as the basis of joy. In other words, when everything's going really good and so you feel like you have joy, it's a condition that we have. Secondly, there's words of joy that refer to subjective feeling of joy. That is just the emotion itself. And then the word that's used here is referring to the outward demonstration of joy. It's sometimes translated exultation, that you get so happy you have to say something, you have to sing it or say it or express it in some way. So this is what he's talking about. In Jude 24, we're told that Jesus, when he presents us to the Father, is going to do it with great joy. It's a very strong expression. It means that he's going to really rejoice and exult as he presents us to the Father because the work had been completed. Or in Luke chapter 1, verse 47, it talks about Mary at being chosen as the mother of Messiah. She was overwhelmed with it. She felt great, great joy because she had been chosen by Almighty God to be the mother of the Messiah. Or in Acts 16, verse 34, the Philippian jailer, you remember when he came out and he thought they were all going to run off and he was going to be killed because he was responsible for these, for Paul and Silas and all the prisoners there in the jail that he was responsible for. But what happened was he asked them, what must I do to be saved? And they told him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so that's what he did and his whole family with him. And having believed in God with his whole family, his whole household, we're told, he brought them, that is both his family as well as Paul and Silas, into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. That would be something, wouldn't it? Just to be overwhelmed with joy because your whole family came to faith in Christ. This is a characteristic of the infant church in Jerusalem. That church, when the Spirit of God came, they manifested a kind of joy that was, it was incredible. It was something that they couldn't get over. The only normal and proper response under certain circumstances is what he says here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, joy unspeakable and full of glory. That is joy that you can't explain and it's full of glory. It's all good. You're, you're not ashamed of it. You're not, you, it isn't that you've been caught doing something that you wouldn't want them to know, rejoicing greatly, but rather that's something that they would join in with you. This is what it's all about. This is a characteristic of the infant church. They glory in Christ and they rejoiced with him and his bride had made herself ready, they said, for him. This is the circumstance in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. What should make you break out in praise of the Father and fill you so with joy that you would explode if you didn't express it? In those moments when the Holy Spirit makes the internal presence of the Lord a vivid reality to our renewed minds, those moments of perception, we perceive the reality of what would give us great joy. 
an understanding and appreciation of what being born again really can't always be quenched. You can't quench the joy that comes to you when you realize, when your eyes are open to the greatness of this salvation that you have received by faith. So what is it about being born again that should fill my heart with overwhelming joy and my mouth with praise for my Lord who begot me? What should I know about this new birth relationship from God? Well, this is what's new about it. There are four things. The first thing is, in 1 John 3, 9, is we received a new nature. We received a nature like the nature of Jesus Christ. And the second thing is we received a new life in 1 John 5, 11, and 12. We received eternal life. It's a new kind of life, a life we didn't have before. And now we have a life that we are told in John 17, 3, it enables us to know the Father and the Son. And so that's the, the third thing about it. It's a new relationship that we come to have through this new birth that we have received. And then Romans 12, 2 says, at the same moment, we received a renewed mind. We began to see things as they really were. So Peter mentions three truths about regeneration that help us appreciate the work for what it really is. He says, for example, in verse 3, you were born again because of the Father's incomparable mercy. According to his great mercy is how we could read that very literally. What is mercy? Mercy is when you give what a person needs, not what they deserve. The emphasis of Paul and Peter, when they talked about the mercy of God, they used slightly different definitions. Uh, the mercy that Paul used was the mercy that was needed because of man's inability to be satisfied. So Paul is talking about mercy needed because of man's inability to satisfy the demands of God's righteous law. Peter, on the other hand, he emphasized mercy that was needed because of man's misery in the midst of his suffering. Because of the Father's love for us, when we were in misery, he delivered us through regeneration. That's what the new birth is really all about. It's a setting free of what was so bad and making us one with Christ. So how did regeneration change our situation? Peter now mentions two results of being born again. He said the believer is born again to hope. Now, what is hope? Well, that's a new expectation. In fact, we're given a definition of this in Philippians chapter 1. It tells us that hope is the earnest expectation that God will fulfill his promises. And so we know that all the promises of God are yes and amen, and he's going to fulfill those promises. So we have these new expectations when we were born again. And then we were born again to life. That is a new relationship. Your whole life as a believer from the beginning to the end is purposed and determined in the one act of God causing you to be born again. God wanted you, one of his own children, to be with him. And in order to do that, he caused you to be born again so that you could enjoy his presence. You could enjoy his person. And you can enjoy sharing the gospel with those who desperately need it. So what is the hope he's talking about? Well, we're told in Philippians 1.20, he defines it this way. He says it's the earnest expectation of the promises of God. That is, Will God fulfill his promises? Yes, he will fulfill his promises. That is hope that we have. Before being born again, we were in a condition that we're, we were spiritually dead. And when we looked at the future, we saw no hope. But through Christ's work, God gave us hope. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we were saved in hope. This means that we have great expectations of what God is going to do for us. The wonderful, wonderful promises he's made to us as his people. In Scripture, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we are given a sample of warnings to rich Christians that they should be instructed in Christ to fix their hope on God, not on money, not on things that they could acquire. 
And so he says, instruct those in Christ to fix their hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Everything God gives you, he wants you to enjoy it. That's why he gives it to you. Now, he gives a warning to persecuted Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And what he's talking about, if you'll look back there just a second, he says, therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Girding up your minds means it's a, it was an expression that was used that was derived from the way men dressed. And when they went out to work, they had to gird up their loins, which means they had to pull up this flowing, almost gown-like work clothes and pull them up and tie them in a knot. And he would gird them up so he could move and without this thing slowing him down. He says, the way you do this is you fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, holy means that you are set apart to God, so you're not being held back by anything else. You are set apart to Him. We were born again to this new inheritance that we have, it says in verses 4 and 5. When you became a child of God, you immediately became heir to an incredible inheritance. Think about that. That all of a sudden you had an inheritance given to you that you had been promised long ago that perhaps you even forgot about. Remember their situation. Although they were aliens and strangers scattered about Asia Minor, they had an inheritance in heaven. Although we are aliens and strangers here, we have an inheritance in heaven. What is our inheritance? Well, it's described by three negatives and one positive. The three negatives you've already heard, imperishable, not subject to decay. It's long in duration. It's going to last forever. Undefiled, incapable of pollution, not subject to moral decay. And it will not fade away. It doesn't lose its beauty or brilliance like a flower or paint on a car. Wouldn't it be terrible if you got stuck with something that was ugly for eternity? But you aren't. You have received an inheritance that it will not fade away. It's reserved. This expression is referring to an army surrounding someone that becomes the ones that they are guarding and they're protecting. And so it means to be kept under guard from outside attack, to guarantee against loss or defect. Our inheritance is under the tightest security. When the Jew wished to designate something as predestined, he spoke of it as already existing in heaven, ever being and ever continuing to be safeguarded in the heavens for you. God has provided that for all of us because he wants us to be filled with joy over Christ so that we can be witnesses that are effective. So what about the heirs? Well, who's protecting us? You may be aware of the fact that there are estates that are worth millions of dollars that are unclaimed every year in our country. For example, there was some years ago, there was a, a estate no one claimed. It was a, the estate of the man who started the Eagle Computer Company, but no heirs showed up. But what we're told in the kingdom of God is that we are protected. We can't get lost. We can't be destroyed. We can't be removed. We're going to experience our inheritance because God has determined that we will. And uh, this idea that he's talking about of being guarded is in the present tense, and it means continual action. It's continually going on. We are being protected. We are being protected from outside attack. And it's through faith. That's the intermediate agency. It's faith that brings salvation that opens the way for God's power to work, for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Our future salvation is the goal of the guarding. That's why he's guarding us. It's so that we can receive the salvation he has promised us. And it's not going to get lost. It's not going to be set aside. We are going to experience. 
So what should I do about this truth? If joy really is the key for me being an effective witness, what should I do? Well, I've told you before about Charles Lee Feinberg, one of my teachers in seminary, saying your forgetteries will always work much better than your memories. <laughs> and what he meant by that is so much easier to forget things or for things to become old hat than it is to remember them. We think about this in regards to our salvation. Did we exult when we were first born again? I have enjoyed the testimony of so many people who have kind of got carried away as they were telling me about the great, great joy they experienced when they first turned to Christ. And this is this. This is uh, Simon the Pharisee. He said, remember, Jesus went to his house for a meal, and a woman came in and began to wash his feet with her tears and dry his feet with her hair. And uh, this Pharisee was very offended by it. And he said this, if this man, that is Jesus, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person that woman is that was touching him. She's a sinner. And so he shouldn't allow her to touch him. But Paul says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing as you are believing. In other words, believing, trusting in Christ produces joy so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't imagine a more powerful motivation and motivating force working in us to bear witness for Christ. What do we need to be an effective evangelist? We need to get the joy of the Lord. It's given to us in this book by Peter. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Unspeakable simply means it can't be explained with words, but it can be felt, it can be experienced. And so he wants us to rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And when we are joyful over Christ, we will share the gospel with people. We want them to know him as well. And sometimes we, ha we have such negative feelings that we cannot hardly come to a place of sharing the glorious reality of who Christ is to people. We need to be filled with the joy that only he brings. And when we are, we can bear witness to Christ. This is going to produce the greatest evangelism that ever takes place on this planet is when we are controlled by the joy of the Lord. I remember um, I used to feel some shame about this, that I would I was so moved by seeing soldiers who had gone overseas and their children were back here and they showed up and they snuck up on their children and surprised them with their presence. And they would just get overwhelmed with joy at seeing their parent because they had been gone for a long time. I, uh, I still remember that it just moved me so deeply that, uh, that when that kind of thing happened. Well, this is what happens when, when the joy of the Lord hits us. Our heart is filled with joy and we want to express the truth about Jesus Christ to someone who doesn't know him. And this is what evangelism really is all about. And so we're told at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19.7, it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. And let us rejoice and his bride has made herself ready. We want to rejoice greatly. We have to be reading things and exposing ourselves to things that do produce joy over who Christ is. We have a Savior who is glorious in every way. And the more we know him, the more joy we have. He is a glorious, glorious Savior. And this is what the Father wants us to know and to always be coming to him, approaching him. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you. Come under my authority and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly and humble in heart. So this word of outward demonstration of joy is what God wants to see in our lives. Jesus, when he presents us to the Father, says he will do it with joy. 
He will present, just think of that, when Jesus presents you to the Father, the finished work, what he has accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection in your life, it says he presents you to the Father with great joy. He's talking about his joy, not your joy, but his joy. He's going to be rejoicing as he presents you to the Father. And we're also told in Luke chapter 1, verse 47, that Mary, when she found out she was chosen as the mother of Messiah, she was overwhelmed with joy. In Acts 16, verse 34, it talks about the Philippian jailer who, having believed in God with his whole household, he brought them along with Paul and Silas into his house and gave them food. He set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. How glorious would that be? Or the Mary Supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. And let us rejoice that his bride has made herself ready. In other words, he's talking about the church of Jesus Christ. The work has been finished and accomplished. And every time you share the gospel with somebody, you are adding to this glorious, glorious group of people who are going to express joy without reservation in his presence. We'll have joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we need to have that now so that we can be effective in bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what we appeal for. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the glorious, glorious gospel that we have heard and understood. We thank you, Father, that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, rose again, and we have put our trust and faith in him. And he has given us all that he promised. He has saved us. He has given us eternal life. He has made us one with him. We have become a child of God. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. And we just pray, Father, that you would... You would use us as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, that we would be those who express the truth about who Christ is and what he has done for us. We pray that you would save many people through the saints in this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.